0: Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, choir and orchestra. Thank you, church. What a great day to gather for worship. I grew up at uh, Roebuck Baptist Church in Spartanburg County, which is real close to Dorman High School. If you're driving up I-26, you can head that direction. And in the pews of the sanctuary, there were the racks that had where you could place the communion cups And inside of those communion cup holders, there were these rubbery inserts that were there. I guess to make sure those things didn't fall out. And as a child, I discovered this incredible thing. Some of those inserts had become worked loose from the wood. And so whenever the pastor started preaching and telling some story about when he was growing up that I didn't find very interesting, (laughs) I could pull that thing out and all of a sudden it became entertainment for... 28 minutes, right? (laughs) So, uh, And uh, it was was not really that fascinating, in fact. I don't know why it was so enjoyable, but I I remember messing with that thing. And um, one day I decided, you know what, I get bored at home too. This might be nice to have at home. So I put it in my pocket, and it came in handy much sooner than I thought. On the drive home, now let me say this, um, when I was growing up, Back in my day, I hit 40 this past week, and so uh, some of you say that you're just a a kid, but uh, I can feel the age setting in. And I'll just go ahead and admit that on Friday I'm walking across the street and I'm already losing a sense of balance. I wipe out in the crosswalk right in front of two parked cars at a stoplight, and I think, what have I done? And I jump up and, you know, just jog past, I'm fine, I'm fine. (laughs) And I realized I have gotten so old overnight, but uh, when I was growing up, back in my day and we got in the car, there were no electronics or TVs to watch, right? And so you had to find your own, you know, your own entertainment. And uh, my dad didn't necessarily tune it to the radio station I wanted to hear. He liked talk radio. And so uh, I pulled out that thing out of my pocket on the way home and I thought, this is great, trying to flip it inside out, do all those things. And my dad looked over his uh, the seat and saw me holding it he said, Son, what you got there? And um, all of a sudden, for the first moment, I realized, I might not have should have taken this from the church. <laughs> it hadn't crossed my mind up until that point that this might have been a bad thing. And so I said, um, well, it goes inside of the pew rack, uh, holds the communion cup. And I knew in about a quarter of a second I had done a wrong thing because my dad had a way of communicating without using words. My brother and I, we would notice, he would, we, we caught it curling his lip. He would stick his tongue out up over his upper lip like this and I knew I'd done the wrong thing so uh, the guiltiest I ever felt walking into a church was that day when I had to return that insert for the communion cup holder in the pew rack of the pew go to the pastor and say I stole this I'm sorry and put it back in the place where it goes in the sanctuary well, let me say, if you are walking into the church this morning and you have a sense of guilt, this is the perfect day for you. This message is written specifically for you, and perhaps you don't feel guilty right this second, but you've felt guilty before. Well, this message is also for you, and I'll go ahead and expand it to say, perhaps you've never felt guilty, but you've been guilty. Well, this sermon has written been written especially for you the truth is we all know what it's like to feel guilty because we all know deep down we are guilty one of the more interesting developments of our modern world is the way that criminals are getting caught on hidden cameras you know those doorbell cameras that kind of catch the people that are there or hidden cameras that catch the license plates whatever it might be in case you haven't heard there are cameras everywhere and people are always listening If it's not people listening, it's your phone or Alexa, something's listening to you. And it's much harder to cover your tracks now. So if you're going to commit a crime, think about that before you do that. But we live in a world where escaping when you're guilty is especially hard to do. Well, today's message comes from a passage of Scripture that describes one of the most famous encounters that Jesus ever has with an individual. And it's a person who is caught in the act of sin. It's a person who walks into the area feeling guilty. So if you've ever felt guilty before, then listen up because this person, as we see Jesus deal with this person who's been declared guilty. A couple weeks ago we began a series called This Is My Story. We're looking at some of the biblical accounts where somebody encounters Jesus or encounters God. And we're asking the question, what happens when God gets hold of a life? And we have great examples from the scriptures for that. Uh, But also, I I guess for ourselves, we have this reminder, we all have a story. Everybody has a story. Sometimes we find certain stories more interesting than our own. But everybody has a story. And I believe that your story matters. Perhaps your story is like the one today where a woman walks before Jesus feeling guilty. But my hope is... That you'll really take the, 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 the messages and think about in your own life. Reflect on your own life. What is your story? What was it like? What's it been like since God has gotten hold of your life? Write it down. I challenged the deacons to do that and then I went right behind them and I wrote mine in a hundred words. Because I felt like I wanted to be short enough so nobody loses interest. But people hear enough bad news in the world. They need to hear the news of how you met Jesus. Because I can tell you if you've met Jesus, that's good news. And people need to hear it. Two weeks ago we looked at a man who was tormented by a demon. He meets Jesus in a cemetery and he was delivered from the demons and then deployed to tell a story. Last week we read the true account of how a religious man named Nicodemus thought that his uh, good works and strict lifestyle would save him, would give him eternal life. But he meets Jesus and learns that legalism will never be enough. So today we're going to meet a woman who, uh, in sin who meets Jesus, and the end of the story is she receives a pardon. So let me offer some background on the story. It's found in the fourth gospel. That's the fourth book of the New Testament, the last part of the Bible. Uh, John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. John is one of Jesus' closest disciples. There were 12 disciples, and there were four that were particularly close, the inner circle. Peter, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So he's very close to Jesus. Most scholars believe that we read Peter's account of the life of Jesus when we read Mark's gospel. Because Mark served as a scribe of sorts for Peter. So as the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write, it was influenced both by Mark's experiences and Peter's message. Matthew and Luke read a whole lot like Mark. In fact we believe or many scholars believe that as Matthew and Luke are inspired by the Holy Spirit to write they use Mark's gospel as a reference point in writing down or ordering or putting into, uh, you know, into print these stories these three gospels are called the synoptic gospels but John's gospel is very different it's not that there's a different story it's not that there's a different character it's not that there's a different message but the way that it's written does not read like the other three there's different patterns that are there, different language that's used. And sometimes there's references to different uh, accounts from Jesus' life or different episodes from his life than the other uh, writers uh, pin down. So as we come to chapter 8 of John's Gospel, I have to go ahead and tell you that many scholars actually find this story we're about to study out of place. In fact, in some of your Bibles it'll be marked off, and it'll be an asterisk and say in the earliest accounts... Uh, of the manuscripts that we have, this story's left out. In my Bible, it's bracketed off just to draw attention to the fact that we've uncovered early manuscripts that kind of leave this story out. Well, uh, and I think that definitely makes you wonder, can we trust the account? Is this a true story? And I figure if you're reading your Bibles and you see that note, you may want me to answer that question. Well, first of all, I think it's really important to note that the biblical scholars are not hiding anything from you. They put it in the Scriptures. This is not a conspiracy. To act like what people are saying is not true. It, it is referencing that these things are not included in the earliest manuscripts. But there's no serious evidence to say it's not true. That it's not a true account. Just that perhaps it's been shuffled into perhaps the wrong spot within the modern text that we have. In fact, many scholars believe it sounds like it fits better with the synoptic gospels. But what I can tell you with confidence is this. Is that this account is found within early manuscripts. Some as early as the 4th century that we see this story being pinned down into the scriptural accounts. What I also can tell you is that early church fathers, many of them referenced this. I read a sermon this week from St. Augustine. It was preached in 430 A.D., and it's on this passage of scripture. So I have all confidence that this scripture is true and it should be trusted as the very word of God. And what we discover is that at this point in Jesus' life, he has this regular habit... Of uh, staying at the Mount of Olives overnight, uh, many people speculate he stayed with Lazarus because Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was on the backside of the Mount of Olives, and that gives him a place to rest. And then he also has easy access to the temple early in the morning. And so it's one of these regular mornings where Jesus has retreated to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he goes down to the temple to preach and that brings or, uh, to teach. And that brings us to our passage for this morning, John eight. I'm going to read to you verse two. It says early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. People were very interested in hearing Jesus teach. The rumors I guess had started to spread about how incredible his insights were so people would gather and this was a normal activity. It says he did this again because it's letting us know this was regular habit for Jesus and it was regular habit for the people to gather to hear what he has to say. It's important to note that the text says all the people. In other words this is not just the religious insiders. This is not just the leaders. In fact it maybe points to more that it was the people, the common people that were gathering to hear Jesus teach. So somewhere within the temple complex Jesus would assume a position of authority which for them the context was to be seated. So he would sit down the crowds would gather in, he would begin to teach. And we can assume he's teaching the Old Testament scriptures. And he's speaking of, he's, he's shedding light on that, and he's placing uh, emphasis on what it's like to live the kingdom life for those who claim to be in the kingdom of God. And a very normal gathering is taking place when he's interrupted. Verse 3-6. through six. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground, So we have this group of accusers that are bringing this woman caught in adultery before Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. Now we treat them very often like religious henchmen. You know, the ones who are just trying to bully and to create problems there and to get their way to push forward. And it may not be fair that we do that all the time. Generally speaking, the Pharisees were genuine in their desire to follow God's commands... But they expected everyone who followed God to demonstrate evidence of righteous living. And they took it too far. And they got obsessed with themselves rather than with God. And they got obsessed with details in their life rather than the truths of God's word. So it would be easy to imagine that the world that Jesus lived in regularly had this occurrence. Where they would drag out some person caught in sin. Like this woman caught in adultery. And then a mob would gather and they would stone this person to death. I mean, I think that's kind of the visual that we get in our minds. But there's no evidence this is really what happened. In fact, what we do know is that in the first century, there was a debate about whether, a debate going on about the death penalty for cases like this. Nothing new under the sun. They were de- debating the death penalty at that point. So in some ways, the Pharisees are bringing a political situation to Jesus. And they're saying, which side are you on? Which side are you going to take? And Jesus regularly kind of stood out of that. He didn't like to get in, engaged in these political debates. But it's as if they're saying to him, all right, Jesus, take a side. Which side are you on? Are you on the side that says the historic account that Moses gives us, that a person caught in adultery has to be killed, or do you, in, you know, interpret it some other way? You know, Which are you? Are you conservative or liberal? Are you states' rights or na- a federalist? Are you a blue state or red state? That's what it sounds like they're doing to Jesus here. And there's a single pawn in the whole affair, this woman. Now, I think it would be impossible for us to ignore the gender issue here. Our world has a history of men oppressing women. And I think this was an easy allegation to bring precisely because she's a woman. The sin is almost seen as worse because she's a woman. You know, guys will be guys, but can you believe what this woman did? That's how it comes across. So they come to Jesus, they respectfully call him teacher, and then they push the woman out in front and they say, this woman is a known sinner. She's committed adultery. We actually caught her in the act. Now that fulfills a requirement of the law that says there had to be two witnesses if you brought an accusation like this. Now, I don't quite know how they caught the woman in the act with two witnesses. Sounds like a setup, but that's real speculation, I guess. But there's a real noticeable absence here. Where's the man? What about the man? That's what it sounds like. Now, we don't know whether this woman was married, engaged, or what the situation was. But we do know that the law says that a woman who's engaged, uh, who, you know, is caught in adultery, both the man and the woman caught in the act, are both to be killed. They're both to be stoned. And so you'll notice the Pharisees here really are not looking for justice. They're just setting a trap, so to speak. So they have this mouse trap, and they place the cheese right on top of it, slide it in front of Jesus. They say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what then do you say? They're just waiting for him to reach for it, right? So in this story, we have Jesus, we have the religious leaders... We have the accused, and we have this crowd who has gathered uh, previously to hear Jesus teach. They're in the temple, and Jesus is put on the spot. And in order to avoid answering, did you notice what he does? But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, wrote in the ground. That's odd, isn't it? You think, that's strange. What is he doing? In our day and age, we're used to uh, politicians and government officials being questioned by the press and they dive into issues they don't want to respond to. Some of them are really talented, and they sound like they're answering the question, but they're dodging the whole time, right? And at the end, you're like, they didn't even answer the question. Well, Jesus does not dodge with his words. Instead, he stoops down and he starts doodling in the ground. You know, it's almost like maybe they won't notice me down here, you know. But some people like to speculate, I wonder what Jesus was writing in the dirt. Some people think maybe he was writing this. You know what I noticed? This is Jesus, the Son of God, drawing in the sand. He's being questioned about the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, which was inaugurated with the Ten Commandments. Do you remember who gave the law to Moses? In Exodus 31, verse 18, it says, When he had finished, that's God, speaking with him, that's Moses, upon Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So, the same finger that inscribed the law into those stone tablets is right here in front of them, drawing in the dirt as they're being, he's being questioned about the law. And so, for me, it's just interesting because I'm thinking they don't even recognize the finger. They're not content with Jesus' answer, so they start pressing him to answer or his uh, deflection, I guess they pressed him to answer. Verse 7 says, But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Did anybody walk in the room this morning feeling a sense of guilt? God's desire is not to condemn sinners. His desire is to forgive sinners. This woman came before Jesus a sinner. It's a cut and dry case. They are not debating, well, was she really guilty or is she innocent? You know, they're not discussion, uh, there's no discussion of nuance here. Not, you know, what the definition of is is. Or who's the person who brought the report. Or did, was there really a crossing of the line happening in this place? The woman is guilty. Everybody knows that. She sinned. She cannot undo the sin. She cannot apologize enough for the sin. She cannot cover it up or reason the guilt away. She cannot overcome the guilt of her past by trying to do or promising to do good things in the future. She's guilty. She's guilty. She's damaged her reputation and the lives of other people. Albeit there are other people that are responsible parties as well. So if Jesus has come to crush sinners, here's his chance. Remember, Jesus said... He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Everybody leaves, but there's somebody left there. And guess what? That somebody who's left is without sin. No sin in Jesus. He's the sinless one, and he has opened the door to be the first to crush the sinner. So if God's desire is to land a blow on the human race for the rejection of righteousness, he's got the perfect opportunity right in front of him. But instead, Jesus extends a pardon. He doesn't acquit her. He doesn't say, well, what you did was really not that wrong. You know, other people have done much worse things. It's not that bad. I know if you could do, have a do-over, you do it again. You wouldn't do it that way. He doesn't say that. She's guilty, but he gives her pardon. Last week we read from John 3 where Jesus encountered Nicodemus. And the text says in verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's desire is not to condemn sinners, but to forgive them. Some speculate that this passage of scripture might have been left out of those early manuscripts because perhaps the people in power were fearful of what this might do, of how people might react to the fact that there's this grace extended in such a dramatic way. Could it be threatening to our way of life? You know, Jesus lets her off the hook. What are we supposed to do with that? Perhaps some thought this would lead down some dangerous path Some might argue from the encounter that sin really must not be serious if Jesus doesn't punish her for obvious sin. Commentator Gerald Borchert writes, Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. Jesus came to fulfill the law here. And he was committed, though, during that, to care for people and to care for their eternity. And he was committed to the transformation of those people. He doesn't come into our life to condemn us. He comes into our life to transform us. To make us an appearance like his son. So he says, from now on, sin no more. So this woman who does no name that we know about, she serves simply as a pawn in a political ploy to try to bring Jesus down. And she only speaks three recorded words that we know about. In response to Jesus' question to her as to whether people were there to bring an accusation, she says, no one, Lord. Now she could have been saying Lord in the same way that people would extend that word as a word of respect to a man in an encounter. Or perhaps she recognized Jesus as Lord. Could it be that this woman is taking the need to confess Jesus is Lord? I think we have to assume that something was happening in her heart in that way. Because she receives her pardon. So this woman caught in adultery encounters Jesus and receives pardon for her sin. You know, there are many people who are afraid to face God. Because they realize they're in sin. And they're afraid to face God in that way. They feel like they have to clean themselves up. Or perhaps they have to pretend like they're somebody they're not. They have to cover themselves up. Let me state clearly for you this morning. God sees you. Is that intimidating? God sees you. He is the all-knowing, all-present God. You cannot hide from Him. You cannot pretend to be somebody else. God sees you, but there's something else about this God. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He loves you, even though He knows you. He doesn't want to condemn the sinner. He wants to eliminate the sin. So would you trust Jesus enough this morning to not run from him, but to receive the forgiveness that he is extending to you? The woman is not the only one who encountered Jesus in the story. The Pharisees and the scribes also encountered Jesus, and their perspective of him was directly challenged. As we said, they were trying to set Jesus up. So they tracked down this woman, and in order to expose him as a fraud, they force him to weigh in on an issue uh, or to take a position on this woman's wrongdoing. Commentators point out to choose either one would call for the condemnation of Jesus because he would be viewed on the one hand of being against the law of Moses and on the other of advocating mob action involving capital punishment. So you have to think that the religious mob felt like we have the upper hand. Oh, we've got him now. Now, it's easy for us to look, at complete, uh, look, look with complete contempt at this mom. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever had rocks in your pockets? Have you ever had a rock in your hand? I'd like to believe the best about you. I try to believe the best about myself. I know my motivation for following Jesus is rooted in love. That's where it began, a loving relationship with a loving God. But I still pick up rocks. I'm apt to believe the worst about the Pharisees because I want to act like I could never be like them. But what's the chances that at the beginning, in their pursuit of God, there was this motivation of love for God? And like me, at times they saw their strict lifestyle and they started to feel good about themselves. Their chest puffed up a little bit, their nose uh, was raised up into the air. They studied the Word of God and they felt the sense of moral superiority. And rather than just demanding a certain level of discipline in their own lives, they lost patience with other people who were not as serious about the things they were serious about. They could not understand the weaker brother or sister. And their loving hearts turned cold and hard toward those people. The self-righteous, judgmental attitude is so destructive to any devoted follower of God. It leads you to keep your pockets full of rocks... Poised and ready to hurl them at whoever crosses a line that you feel like is less devoted than you. Rocks of judging thoughts, rocks of impatient words, rocks of bitter resentment. And let's be honest, there are stone throwers run rampant in the church. I hate to admit it, but they do. People judge the way people parent, they judge the way they talk to one another, to their kids, the things that they entertain themselves with. Uh, They they judge uh, just all sorts of things, the way they dress the bad choices they make. Now these are people who are energized by gathering rocks, finding unworthy people, whether inside the church, outside the church, or just visiting. So these religious leaders who are standing by to hear Jesus, Jesus' response to their question, I think they're surprised when they hear Jesus who stands up and essentially says, go ahead, have at it, stoner. But just one thing, whoever in your group here today is the one without sin, let that person go first. Now, it's really easy to see sin in others, but it takes contemplation and honesty to see sin in ourselves. From reading the text, it sounds to me as if the younger ones, I mean, they are ready to pounce. They look at the older ones who are standing there with the rocks in their hands, and they notice that the older ones look into their hearts, and then they drop the rocks, and they walk away one by one. It's a dangerous thing when sinful people start passing judgment. When sinful people start passing judgment, they end up bringing judgment on themselves before a holy God. So let me ask a question. Who here today needs to drop some rocks? Anybody bring some prejudices in the room this morning? Anybody carrying a vendetta? Anybody here have a hard time loving because of the unyielding judgment in your heart? Who needs to drop the rocks? One of the reasons that people... Living in sin think they can't come before God is because they have to get past all the religious people who feel like only people that are worthy enough can come before God. Folks, there's nobody worthy. The ground at the cross is level. Every single one of us is desperate for the grace of God. So the problem with believing that God's desire is not to condemn sinners but to forgive is that we have a misinformed idea of who God is and we have a church that very often misrepresents who he is. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear a clear message in Christ's words to this woman. It's as if he is saying, they're no different from you. I mean, their chests are puffed, their nose are in the air, but y'all are all in the same boat. They're sinners just like you are. So he says, has nobody condemned you? She responds, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, okay, then I don't condemn you either. And the offer that is being made is, how would you like to start all over? How would you like a mulligan? How would you like to close the coffin on that sinful living that only leads to death and be born from above, be born again as a new creature? Well, you ought to ask the question, how can Jesus do that? I mean, how can he just wipe the slate clean? I mean, in case you missed it, this woman has sinned. And she walks into the court with a death sentence on her life because she has sinned and she owes a debt to God. She's going to die then Jesus literally steps in between her and death. Had he not spoken up, had he not moved out of the way, it appears they would have thrown the stones and killed her right there. So Jesus literally saved her life. And when the religious leaders left that place, you know what? They no longer wanted her to die. They wanted him to die. And guess what? He would. He would die. She will live. Because he will die in her place. That is the gospel. And there's an interesting closing statement for this passage of scripture. It says, before you go away and start again, just one more thing. One more thing. Go and sin no more. Leave the sinful self, the sinful life behind. And it makes sense. Because he saved her life. So how could you walk away and not honor him by the way that you lived? I mean, the rest of her life is a credit to this one that saved her. Grace doesn't mean you don't have to repent. Grace empowers you to be able to repent. So perhaps you come here this morning. Nobody dragged you here, but you're living in a sinful lifestyle. If you were exposed today, your sin would be obvious. If you are a follower of Jesus living in sin, hear the voice of the Lord this morning. From now on, sin no more. Will you trust God enough? to end the illicit relationship? Will you trust God enough to find help for the habit? Will you trust God enough to choose a different way to live? That's what Jesus is calling you to do. And if you've received the grace of God, you're no longer your own. Shouldn't you live as if you have been delivered? If you're not a follower of Jesus, there is forgiveness and there is eternal life available to you. You don't have to earn it. It's that Jesus died the death you deserve so that you could have eternal life. So you just receive it. You know, we all have a story. The woman's story is that she met Jesus and received pardon for her sin. Today, if you're carrying around sin, would you receive that free offer of pardon? Jesus did not come to condemn, but to forgive. Heavenly Father, what a great example we have. Of what it's like to come before you in our sin. The example that you extend pardon to those who call you Lord. God, I pray for those that are in the room, those that are joining us by television, those that are online. Father, that they would respond to this free offer today. God, and help each of us, even those that are followers of yours already, to choose today to follow you by leaving behind our sinful life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If God's speaking to your heart today and you need to respond to the invitation, I encourage you to do so. It may be to receive this free offer. It may be to repent in some way. It may be to join the church following believers' baptism. If God's speaking to your heart, would you respond? I'm going to invite you to stand. Our choir will sing. I'll be waiting down front. You respond. So glad you're here.